Well, so as we come to John chapter 11, if you've been tracking with us in this series, you know that there are seven miracles that John records that Jesus did. He did way more than seven, but John makes the point to record seven. And in John chapter 11, we find the seventh of those miracles. So we are coming to sort of uh, the closing arguments, if you will, that John is making through the works of Jesus. So he's been making, he's been making an argument that Jesus is the Christ, that he's the Son of God. And he's been making that argument by displaying the works that Jesus did, his miraculous works in particular, but also he's been doing it through his words. And the words are going to continue on from here as we get into chapter 13 and 14 and so on. We're going to find those words are going to continue. But this is sort of his closing argument in the Gospel of John about the works that Jesus has done. It's the pinnacle of all his miracles. Aside from his own resurrection, this is the pinnacle of the miracles that Jesus did in his earthly life and in his earthly ministry. So it's as if what, Jesus, what John is saying to us by recording it this way is he's saying, all right, Here's my last closing argument as it pertains to the works of Jesus. Now I want you to hear it and I want you to see it. And so friends, if I could say to you, if you are not a follower of Jesus, here's what he's saying to you today. He is saying, I want you to see in this last miracle, I'm going to record exactly who Jesus is. I want you to understand his power. I want you to understand his power and his mercy. And so the question that comes to you if you're not a follower of Jesus today is this. Is can the thing you worship raise the dead? Can what you worship raise the dead? That's the challenge that John wants to put in front of you today. Whatever you're worshiping, if it's yourself, if it's power, if it's money, if it's new age ideas, if it's another religious leader or figure, whatever it may be, he challenges you today to say, my Jesus raises the dead. Can what you worship or who you worship do the same? And so we just want to encourage you to take that that question seriously. We're so glad that you're here pondering who Jesus is with us today. Let us do you the service of saying the scripture wants to challenge you today to consider the claims of Jesus and to consider his power that it, it speaks to us that he is God in the flesh. And really consider, because everybody worships something, you might be thinking, well, I don't worship anything. That's not true. You worship something. There is something that if it were taken from you, you couldn't live. There, were some, there is something that you find your identity in and your purpose in in life. That thing is the thing that you worship. And whatever that may be, you have to ask the question, can it raise the dead? Can it raise dead hopes? Can it raise dead people? Can it do what Jesus can do? That, that's what he wants you to see today. But of course, this miracle recorded in John chapter 11 does more than just speak to us about Jesus' ability to raise the dead and challenge us to see that he's God. It also is a miracle that's meant to give us great comfort for when we grieve. And that's what I want us to focus on today. And I don't mean that this miracle is just meant to give you uh, sort of comfort when you grieve with a sort of a light grief. This is the kind of comfort that Jesus aims to give you and it's, it's many-fold, and we'll see it unfold as we look at the Scripture, all the ways that Jesus in this story is seeking to show you the kind of comfort that he has to give. And as you look at it, I, I want you to see that what Jesus is speaking to you is that he wants to come to you in your grief. And I'm not talking about a light grief. I'm talking about the heaviest of griefs. The kind of grief that seems so heavy you don't imagine you could bear it one second longer that Jesus comes to you in that grief and he says, I have a comfort to give. It's so big, that is so deep, that it's enough. And so that's what we look at today. 
We're going to look at 54 verses. I'm going to read them all because the story just needs to be read in its entirety. So if you have your your Bible with you, look with me at John chapter 11, beginning in verse 1. We're going to read it together. And you'll find the words on the screen as well if you didn't bring a Bible with you today. If I could say too, if you don't have a Bible, we'd love to give you one. You can make your way out to the Welcome Center after the service today. If you don't possess a Bible, man, would we love to just give you one. Our gift to you, to have God's word in your hand. All right, John chapter 11, beginning in verse 1. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest in sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying, In private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews, who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him? But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man 
also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. And I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, not for the nation only, but also to gather into one, into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus therefore no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. All right. That's the story of Lazarus. Good job sticking with me. Well done. It's a long story. It's a good story, yes? So here's what I want to encourage you in, okay? I said that this story comes to offer us grief, uh, to offer us comfort in our deepest grief. And so I want to, if I can, say this. What six things might we find Jesus speaking to us in our grief in this story? So let's, let's approach this in this way. I want to offer you six things and I want to speak them to you like I think Jesus might speak them to you. Now, don't, don't imagine that I'm saying I, I know exactly how Jesus would say this, okay? But in this passage, we have, I think, six statements from Jesus to us that are a great comfort and grief. So we're just going to move through those six. So here's number one. The first is, the suffering that is causing your grief is for my glory. That's the first thing we see. The suffering that is causing your grief is for my glory. So if we look again at verse four, just go back to the beginning. We're gonna make our way from top to bottom in this passage. When Jesus heard, but when Jesus heard it about Lazarus' illness, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now let me point out two things there in verse four. Number one, Jesus clearly has supernatural knowledge that Lazarus is going to die. So when he says it doesn't lead to death, he's not saying Lazarus isn't going to die, and then later he's surprised that he does die. But rather, he's saying it's not ultimately going to lead to death. I have a plan in mind of what I'm going to do. This illness will not ultimately lead to death, is what Jesus is saying there in verse 4. The second thing I want you to notice is that he says the reason for this illness is that God is going to get glory from it. And who else is going to get glory from it? The Son. Now that there in and of itself is a claim that Jesus is making, that he and the Father are supposed to get glory together. That his glory as the Son should be one with God's glory as the Father. 
But the first thing that we see when it comes to comfort in our grief is an understanding that what Jesus is giving us is a purpose for our grief, a purpose for our suffering. See, that's what's most important here, I think, is that he's giving us that clear purpose statement for our suffering in the path of righteousness. It's that our suffering creates an opportunity for God to be glorified. Now here's the thing, friends, I want you to understand this. That can seem like a callous statement if what follows next in the text didn't happen, perhaps we might receive it as such. Perhaps we might see that this is simply God going, you know what, I don't care what happens to you, I'm just gonna get my glory in whatever manner I wanna get it, and if that causes you to go through difficulty or if it means good things for you, I'm indifferent towards that. That would seem like a callous statement, right? A God who's simply saying, I'm gonna get my glory, I don't care what it costs you. Hang on, because what you're gonna see is that he very much cares, but the first thing that we need to understand is that suffering can produce glory for God and glory for Jesus. And it's not until we understand that that is the purpose of our lives, to glorify him, that we have a purpose in suffering that's big enough to help us walk through it. The first thing Jesus gives us is a statement that your suffering can bring God glory. And if you don't have that purpose, suffering becomes meaningless and purposeless. But if you have that purpose, and understand that the very reason you live and move and have your being, the very reason you breathe in and breathe out right now is because there's a God who created you and you should glorify him. You should bring him glory at all times and in any way possible. And for a Christian, here's what happens. Over time, we are meant to begin to understand that in deeper and deeper ways so that we become a people who would say, I don't care what you will bring as long as it brings you glory. That's all I want. It's my sole agenda. I'm not interested in anything that doesn't bring you glory. I'm only interested in what does bring you glory. It's all that I want from life. I don't want riches. I don't want money. I don't want talent. I don't want fame. I want you to get glory from me. It's all I want. That's what a Christian's heart is supposed to beat like. We're supposed to be ruined for all other ambitions, for all other purposes. And friends, do you see that if you become ruined for everything other than the glory of God in your life, then even suffering has a purpose. Even great difficulty has a purpose. You say, oh, if you can get glory from this, then it's okay with me. That's the first thing he wants to give us. An understanding that your suffering is not purposeless, but purposeful because it exists for the glory of God. That's what Jesus says about Lazarus' death and the suffering and the grief of Mary and Martha. And it's what he would say to you and I and our greatest difficulty. We need a taste for the glory of God. Have you ever had an experience where you just sort of lost a taste for anything else because you had the best of something? My wife and I went one time to a restaurant in San Diego and they served us, it's called Juniper and Ivy. If you're ever in San Diego, go there. So we went there, and they, we, somebody said, you gotta order the biscuit. And so we said, okay, biscuit at a nice restaurant seems odd, but okay. So we order a biscuit. They bring it out in a skillet, and there's a dome on top of it filled with smoke. They set it down on our table. They open it up. The smell alone I would have paid $10 for. It hit me. We began to eat this biscuit, and I immediately knew I'm ruined for every other biscuit I will ever taste. They're all trash and garbage now. Because this biscuit, literally a couple sat down next to us, and my wife hates it when I do this, but I immediately turned to them and said, you have to order the biscuit. 
They're like, who are you? I'm like, it doesn't matter, order the biscuit. All right, we were like well into our meal, we're paying the check and I'm just like, I'm evangelizing about the biscuit. I'm like, it's so good. When you get ruined, when you get ruined for any other thing in life, when you have the best of something, can I just tell you there's no better purpose than God's glory in your life. There's no better purpose. You try and live for anything you want and you will eventually get tired of that as your purpose. If you will live for the glory of God to be revealed in your life, you'll have a purpose big enough to to allow suffering to have meaning and to help you to persevere in it and to see that this is not just random. You'll have a purpose big enough for that, but not only that, you will be filled with a sense of meaning and joy that is unmatched. There is no purpose like the glory of God for a human life. That's the first thing that we see. So the first thing you need is a great purpose. And it's the first thing that's offered to us in this story. The second thing that Jesus would say to us is your suffering doesn't mean I don't love you. Your suffering, which is causing your grief, does not mean I don't love you. One of the things I love about this story is how John goes out of his way to point out how much Jesus loves Lazarus and Mary and Martha. It's the first thing when, when Mary and Martha, by the way, they know their love. Did you notice that? They know they're loved because Mary and Martha send a message to Jesus. And what do they say about Lazarus? The one whom you love is ill. In other words, they're appealing to Jesus' love for their brother and they know that he loves them. They don't doubt that. They're sure of it. So sure that they can send in this message and say, the one you love is ill. And then, by the way, John is if to reiterate, reiterate it. That's verse 3. But then in verse 5, he goes, the, the, the gospel writer, John, he says, now... It's a new paragraph, and he says, now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Why does John include that? He doesn't have to include that. He could just move forward in the story, but he goes out of his way to point out that Jesus absolutely loves, absolutely adores this brother and his two sisters. He cares for them. He cares about them. You see, it's so easy when we are in grief caused by suffering, caused by difficulty. Isn't it so easy to believe that God might be indifferent towards us? that perhaps God might not love us. So the second thing we find in the story is that Jesus is saying to us, when you suffer, when you're in grief, know that the suffering that's causing your grief is not in your life because I don't love you. Not only is it in your life for the glory of God, it's not there due to an indifference that I feel towards you. Now he's gonna go even further here in a minute, but that's the first thing that I need you to see, that he is saying, I Love you. Now, the people who are around, they even ask that question. Did you notice in verse 36 and verse 37? They say, see how he loved him after Jesus had wept. Verse 35, shortest verse in the Bible. It's like the Bible trivia answer. What's the shortest verse in the Bible? Right. Jesus wept. And then the very next sentence, the very next sentence, they say, see how he loved him? Because he's weeping. He's crying. And they assume, they understand, that means that he has emotional connection to Lazarus. He loves him. But then the very next question is the question we all ask. Couldn't he, who healed the man who was born blind, they're referring back to one of the other miracles in the Gospel of John and saying, he healed this man. No one had ever seen this before in the history of the world. He was born blind. He didn't become blind somehow. He was born blind and Jesus was able to heal him. Couldn't that kind of healing been given to Lazarus? 
So in other words, what they're saying is, if he really loved him, wouldn't he have shown up? I mean, if he really loved him, wouldn't he have come and healed him and done this? It's the question we all ask. But this is the assurance that God wants to give us. And this assurance of his love is like a key that turns a lock, which opens a door to a new way of seeing and enduring suffering. When you suffer, when you're in grief, you need deeply rooted in you a belief that God loves you. And here's the, here's the promise. God will show it to you if you'll look for it. If you will, in the midst of your difficulty, keep your eyes open and ask God to show you the evidence of his love, he will show it to you. He will bring you moments and, and truths and reminders of his love for you. And quite often, so listen, look for it, listen for it, Go into God's word when you suffer and when you're in grief and ask him to show you and let it jump off the page because God's word is alive and he will show you. He will speak to you what he's speaking here to Lazarus and the sisters. I love you. Don't let your suffering and your grief convince you of anything else being the truth because this is the truth. I love you. That's hard to hold on to. Quite often it will come through one another If I could just say that, one of the things I think is a great practice, this happens more with my wife than it happens with me, but we are regularly just asking God, hey God, do you have any encouraging word, any word that you know you want to speak through us to someone else? And man, it's almost like on a weekly basis for my wife, then in particular she goes, I feel like God is impressing this upon my heart, so she'll call whoever it is that's on her mind. And, you know, the way it works for her is, like, that person's there for days on end and she can't kind of get rid of it. And she's like, okay, I need to call this person. And I feel like I have this something to share with them. And she'll share it. And it will be the most time. They'll say, how did you know? How did you know that that's what I needed to hear? Like, or how, you know. And she knew because the Holy Spirit spoke it. And then she just carried that forward onto someone else. Be looking, be looking for ways that God might encourage through you. And be listening for God to speak to you through others, his encouragement. That's one of the ways that I find again and again that when I'm in my grief, in my moments of grief, that God speaks to me through someone else. Because sometimes I have to get, someone outside of my own head has to come and speak God's truth to me. So the second thing that Jesus says to us is your suffering doesn't mean that I don't love you. The third thing, and this is a hard one, I am delaying because I love you. Did you notice what happened in verse 5 and 6? Now, we need to do a little timeline work here so that you can fully understand what's going on in the text. But look at verse 5 and 6 again. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Now, if you have the NIV, the next word there is going to be yet, and that is wrong. Because the next word is so or because. And that's a big difference. Now, Jesus loved Mary and Martha and Lazarus so... When he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. What's the difference between a yet and a so there? If it's a yet, then it's he stayed two days longer where he was rather than coming to Lazarus. Why? In spite of the fact that something needed to be done. In spite of the fact that he loved them. But if it's Mary and Martha and Lazarus are loved by Jesus, so when he heard that he was ill... He stayed two days longer where he was. In other words, Jesus' delay is intentional and it's born out of his love, not in spite of it. 
In other words, there's something about his delay that is the result of the fact that he loves them. Something he wants to do in them, something he wants to do through them, something he wants to communicate, something about his love is causing him to say, rather than rush there, I'm going to stay here for a few moments. Now, let me tell you what I, what I think is going on here. There's a couple of things that play in this passage. Two very key timing issues are revealed to us. Number one, it says he stayed two days longer, and then later we find out that when he arrives, Lazarus had been dead how many days? Anybody remember? Four days, right? So there's commentators argue about where Jesus was. There's two possible locations. It's not that important, actually, which of those two, loca- two locations he was in. But based upon the timing of Jesus delaying two days and then the timing of him arriving four days after Lazarus had died, one of two things is true. Either Lazarus died while the message was on its way to Jesus because Jesus was one day away. So Lazarus would have died before Jesus even got the message. Then Jesus would have delayed two days and then he would have taken one day of travel. The other option is that he's somewhere where he's four days away, which means that Jesus gets the message. Lazarus, he waits two days Lazarus dies, and then Jesus takes a four-day journey to get there. Either way, here's the point. Jesus could not have made it there before Lazarus died. And that tells us something about the sisters' questions of him in just a moment that we'll see. I don't think they're questions of uh, accusation. I think they're questions of affirmation. And I'll tell you our statements of affirmation of his power rather than questioning why he actually wasn't there. Because they know where he was. They sent the message to him. And if they sent the message, whether he's one day away, they would have known when Lazarus died, known when the, known when the message would have reached him, and known that he couldn't have physically been present there. So here's the, the important part of that. Here's the important part of that. The delay then the reason for Jesus' delay is because he loves Lazarus and Mary and Martha and he wants to reveal something through them because he loves them. And the thing he wants to reveal is his power to raise the dead through Lazarus' life. Now the reason he delays is because there's a Jewish tradition that believed that a soul would hang out around a body for three days after that body died. And at that point, seeing as the body began to deteriorate, the soul would then leave. Now that's not true, but it was a superstition in Judaism. And so the reason Jesus is delaying and not arriving until four days later is because he doesn't want anyone to make the mistake of thinking that he's just reviving someone. He's not reviving someone. He's resurrecting a dead person. And that's what he wants them to see and understand. His love is what causes him to delay. Now, This, again, might seem like calloused or cruel logic. But that's only true if the end for which he delays is not so much better than the grief we endure as to make it worth it. Do you get what I mean by that? Jesus sometimes delays in delivering you from your grief. Have you experienced this? You just take it, take it off me. I want you to come and I want to be done with this. I want to be done with this illness. I want to be done with this sickness. I want to be done with this strife, this turmoil, whatever it is. Would you please come and undo it or deliver me from it? And sometimes Jesus delays much longer than we would like. And the thing he's saying to you, friend, is if he's delaying, he's not delaying in spite of his love for you. He's delaying because of his love for you. 
He wants to do something in you and through you. And that's why he delays. He loves you so much that he is delaying so that you will better see what it is that he is doing and wants to do in you. Now here's the thing. Like I said, that may seem callous or cruel, but I promise you that what will be on the other side of his delay, whether it's until the day he brings us home once and for all, or whether he delivers us in this life, the thing you will experience on the other side of his delay, I can assure you because he's delayed because of his love for you, will be so rich and so much better than what you've endured that you will then see the purpose for why he, made you, why he delayed. And when you see it, I know right now it's hard to see it. I know right now it's hard to see it. But what is waiting for you is better than what you are going through now. Can I say that again? What you are waiting for is better than what you are going through now. And it will be so much so that you will say, along with Paul, that was a light and momentary affliction that produced in me an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. He does not delay in spite of his love. He delays because of his love. You have to cling to that. He's saying to you, I love you. And when he delays, you have to cling to that so you know if you're not delivering me, if you're not coming, if you're not showing up and giving me relief, then it's because you love me. There's something you're doing. I can't see it now can't see it now, but I trust you're doing something. The fourth thing he would say to us is, I will comfort you with the truth. I will comfort you with the truth. Look at verses 20 through 27. This is when he gets into this conversation with Martha. Now, the thing I want you to notice here is that the words that that Martha and Mary speak to Jesus are identical. Did you notice that? If you had been here, what? My brother would not have died. Martha and Mary say the same thing. Now, in light of the fact of what I just explained to you about the timing of this, I don't think Martha and Mary are saying to Jesus, we blame you for not being here because you could have been here. I think they know that the travel and all the timeline. So when they say, if you had been here, my brother would not have died, they're not accusing, they're affirming and essentially saying, oh, I wish you'd been here because I know your power is so big and your love is so good. You, could, you would have saved them. You would have, you would have made it okay. Because that, that's who you are. We've seen you open the eyes of the blind. We've seen you make the lame walk. We've seen it. We know that's who you are. So it's a statement of affirmation of his power, not doubt of his love. We should emulate Martha here when she says, I know, in verse 22, right? When she says, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. Even now, I know that whatever you ask... God will give you. She's affirming that she believes that Jesus is who he claims that he is. She's stating that she doesn't doubt that. But now what comfort does Jesus offer her? How does he do it? Because he comes in to comfort her at this moment. And what does he say? He says there will be a future resurrection. In verse uh, verse 23 now, he says to her, Jesus said, To her, your brother will rise again. And Martha understands him and she says, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. She says, Jesus, I get that what you're talking about is that at the end of time, you're gonna resurrect the dead. That's something Jews believe, it's something Christians believe. We know this is gonna take place. And so she says, I affirm that. But in her statement there, she's saying something to the effect of, 
okay, I, I know that he's going to rise again on the last day. Now, Jesus is kind of cryptically saying he's going to rise again in about 10 minutes, all right? But he's also, in a very real sense, referring to the resurrection that's, that's to come, that's the future. And she understands that. And she says, I know that he'll rise again on the last day, which is her way of saying, is there more comfort? Is there any more comfort than that? I mean, how many of you have, have thought and known in the midst of your great grief, Jesus is going to come and he's going to make everything new one day. The Bible teaches that, right? He's going to come and he's going to renew it all. He's going to restore us. We're going to receive resurrection bodies. We're going to live forever in his presence. And yet sometimes, can we be honest and say, we, we might even say, could I have a little more comfort than that? I know that's coming, but it seems so far away that I just, I would love a little something more now. Could I, please? That's a little bit of something what Martha is saying to him. Now look at what Jesus says in response. Because he's, look, Jesus comforts with the truth. And sometimes, I don't know that he's slapping Martha around here per se. But he's not, he's not just sort of um, falling into a, a weeping puddle. We're going to see that in a moment. But here's what he says. She says, I know that he'll rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And then Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. I am the resurrection and the life. And then he's going to explain what those two things mean right afterwards. I am the resurrection and the life. And then he says, whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. So that's the first. He's defining what the resurrection is. And then after that, he's going to define what the life is. So when he says, I am the resurrection, and then afterwards he says, whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live, he's saying this, I am the one with the power to turn death on its head. Don't you understand, Martha, that when I say there's going to be a future resurrection, that everyone who dies believing in me is going to live again. I'm going to raise them. Don't you understand that that future resurrection that's coming, I'm here now and I'm the one who holds all the power of it. In other words, it's not some distant, future, cold truth. It is personal and intimate so much so that I, the very one who has the power of that resurrection, am standing here with you now. When Jesus says, I am the resurrection, he's saying, that great enemy that no human being in all of history has ever defeated, I'm here and he bows to me. Everyone who believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Because I am the one who undoes death. And I'm here with you, standing in your very presence. So he says, friends, the reason a future resurrection is a great comfort to a believer is not just because one day all this is going to be undone. All the suffering and the grief that comes from it is going to be undone. That's not the only reason. It's because the resurrection comes with Jesus. It's not just that there's a resurrection. It's that there's a resurrection and he is it. When he comes and resurrects the dead, the joy of that is not, yay, I'm alive again. It's, yay, I'm in the presence of Jesus forever and ever and ever. I am his and he is mine. He will be the sun and the moon. He will be the stars that shine. He will bring light. He will bring joy. He will bring peace. And all sickness will flee from him. Every tear will be dried. That's what he's saying when he says, I am the resurrection. And then look at what he says next. And the life. 
So he could have just left that off. He says, I am the resurrection, this future resurrection that's going to happen. Martha, you need to believe in this truth. Friends, you need to set your mind on a future resurrection that is brought about by the King of kings and Lord of lords and cling to it for the great hope that it is because it is a comfort in grief when you know it's coming. And not just a general idea of a resurrection, but one that comes with Jesus. And then he goes on to say, I'm the resurrection and the life. And he defines that for us in the second half of that verse that we just read. So after defining the resurrection by saying, whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Now verse 26. And everyone who lives by believing in me, is what he's saying there, everyone who lives by believing in me shall never die. And he says, do you believe this? So in what sense is he saying you'll never die? Well, he's defining what he means when he says, I am the resurrection and now I am the life. For him to be the life, he's saying that whoever lives by believing in me, in other words, whoever whoever has eternal life through faith in Jesus, that's what he's saying, whoever has that will never die. Well, how can he say that? Aren't we all gonna die someday? Physically, yes. Here's what he's saying. The resurrection life that will be yours in the future has already begun in you because I put my spirit in you. And because that life has begun in you, in a very real sense, even when your body dies, the life that has already come into you and taken up residence in you, that life never stops. It's going to keep going. You are going to exit this life and go into the next one. And in a very real sense, your eternal life has already begun. It's already in you. It's been gifted to you and planted in you. Now, do you want comfort? Draw from the well of the life that has been placed within you. There is a well that has been placed in your heart. It's a well of the water of eternal life. And it's been put there by God if you have faith in Jesus Christ. And if you want comfort in your grief, you need to put the bucket of that well down into the crystal clear, gorgeous, satisfying water that lives within you because it's been placed there by God. And he's saying not only is there a future hope and resurrection that you look to for comfort, because I am the resurrection, he's saying there is a life that is in you now, the resurrection life that's already begun and will continue forever. In that sense, you will never die. He says, now I want you to draw down into that water and I want you to pull it up, right? What about in Ephesians when Paul says, he can do exceedingly, abundantly, beyond all that we ask or imagine. Amen. How? According to the power at work within us. In other words, there's a power, there's a resurrection power, there's a resurrection life that's already present in you now if you believe in Jesus. One day will be made complete. But he says, I'm the resurrection and the life. So what he's saying to Martha is these truths about the resurrection in the future and the resurrection life that's been planted in you now, these are your comfort that I want to give you. I'm comforting you with the truth. Now, here's what he says next. I will comfort you with tears. So here's what I want you to notice. Mary and Martha speak the same words to Jesus. I already noted that, right? If you had been here, my brother would not have died. And with Martha, he comforts her with the truth. He says, I'm the resurrection and the life. Then he explains what he means by that. In other words, he is coming to her in a certain way. And then Martha, uh, Mary comes and she bows down at Jesus' feet and she's weeping. And she says, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And what does Jesus do? Does he say, I am the resurrection and the life? No. He just cries. Seems like he can barely get the words out when he says, where, where have you laid him? 
He has no words for Mary. He has tears for Mary. Why? Why words for Martha? Why truth for Martha and tears for Mary? Because Mary's not Martha and Martha's not Mary. Jesus. Here's here's the reality. Sometimes Jesus comforts us with the truth. Because what we need. We might even need to be slapped upside the head with it a little bit. And that's a real kind of comfort, by the way, to get slapped upside the head by some truth. May not feel like comfort all the time, but it is. But you know what? Some of you are bent towards, like, that's the kind of comfort you always want to offer somebody. You know, you may be a little caustic. That's, that's too harsh a term, sorry. But you may be the kind of person that just goes, I'm just going to speak the truth all the time. You know what? Some people need the comfort of tears. Some of you might be prone, and this, I, I would argue this might be most of us. Most of us, when we encounter grief, we, we don't know how to speak the truth to that. And we're not, sure how to, we're not sure how to engage a person in grief with something that's true. It, just, it might even feel too difficult. And so we just, we never speak truth. We just, we cry with them. That's great. Do you know that everybody needs both? Not at every moment always, but everybody needs both. Everybody needs to be comforted sometimes with the truth and comforted sometimes with tears. And you and I have got to learn how to do that. And here's the beauty. Jesus will comfort you with the truth when you need to be comforted with the truth. And he'll comfort you with tears when you need to be comforted with tears. And I love that. Because here's the thing. He knows he's going to raise Lazarus and he's not emotionally indifferent. It is not contradictory for a God who is completely sovereign and knows that he's gonna work all things for the good of those who love him and is able to say, your suffering is for my glory and I'm delaying because I love you. It's not contradictory for that same God knowing all of that to weep with us. And by the way, the English does us a disservice here. There's There's a great term. I don't know why the English versions don't translate this better. But there's a Greek term here. Then when it says Jesus was deeply moved, he comes to the tomb and he's deeply moved. That word is poorly translated because do you know what it actually says there in the Greek? It says he snorted with anger. In other words, Jesus is ticked off. He's mad. I mean like mad enough for like snot bubbles to be coming out of his nose. Right? And it's a weird image. But like he's literally snorting with anger. Well, who's he angry at? He's angry at Mary and Martha? That doesn't seem like the tenor of the text. It's going out of his way to say, I, I love you, I love you. I love. That, that's like out of his way to show us how much he loves them. I think he's angry at death. He's coming to the tomb and he's going, I've had just about enough of you. Lazarus, Come out. He is angry, moved, compelled. Our God, our Jesus, is not emotionally unmoved by our pain. He is not indifferent towards us. He knows what he's going to do. He knows the great glory coming to us, the eternal weight of glory being birthed in us through this light and momentary suffering, he knows all that's gonna come to pass and yet he is angry at death and weeps with those who weep. He will come and comfort you. And I guess, friends, all I can say there is when you experience it, I mean, when you weep, 
and you grieve. And Jesus meets you in that moment and you know, you know that he's not indifferent. The thing I'd encourage you in is you have to cultivate, you have to cultivate before grief comes a relationship with Jesus that's close enough to hear him speaking his love to you. The time to do that is, is now he, he, I'm not saying that he won't enter into your grief if you haven't done that already. I'm not saying he won't do that. But I am saying that there is a real gift in having spent time with Jesus and prayed and talked to him and walked with him and served him so that when grief comes, it just becomes easier to hear his voice. And, and he's gonna comfort you with the truth and he's gonna comfort you with tears. Each according to their need. The last thing we see Jesus saying to us is I have saved you or I have saved your life at the cost of my own. The thing that you needed to notice in this text in verses seven through 10 and then again at the end in verses 45 through 54 and I'll just refer back to them. We're not gonna read them again. But the thing you notice is when he said he was going to Judea, what did the disciples say? Are you gonna go there again? They were just gonna stone you. They're talking about the end of chapter 10 which just happened. Jesus made some claims, they picked up some stones, they were ready to kill him. Jesus gets out of town because he knows it's not time to die yet. And the disciples say, are you gonna go there again? And Thomas, who gets a bad rap, is doubting Thomas, shows more courage than anybody in this moment. I love it because he says, let's go, we'll die with him. Here we go. The assumption is if he goes to Jerusalem, he's gonna die. And Jesus knows it. And then we find at the end of the text, what do the religious leaders do? He raises Lazarus from the dead. In other words, what Jesus knows is if I raise Lazarus from the dead, I'm taking him out of the grave by my going into the grave. Because once I do this, they're not gonna have a choice anymore. And what do the religious leaders do? They go, look, if, we, if this keeps up, everybody's gonna follow him. And if everybody follows him, Rome is not gonna have it. And they're gonna come and crush us. And they're concerned about their own position. They say they're gonna take our nation and our place right, our prestige and privilege, they're gonna take it. So it's better that he should die than that the whole nation should get crushed underneath Rome's power. Because someone who can raise the dead is gonna gather a people to follow him. And that's dangerous for us. And Jesus knows all this. And so when he raises Lazarus, do you know that he's doing it at the cost of his own life? He goes knowing that what he's gonna do is gonna lead directly to his own death. And friends, hear the comfort of Jesus for you. He would say to you, I have laid down my life so that you might take up yours. I saved your life at the cost of my own. There's the great, there's the great weapon to take up against the idea that God might be indifferent towards you. The cross of Jesus again and again comes to us. You don't need another answer, friend. You don't need another answer. This is the answer. The cross of Jesus proclaims to you that God laid down the life of his son and Jesus laid it down himself because he loved you and wanted to save you and he did it at great cost. Be comforted by that. And friends, when you grieve, you need all of these comforts. Take up every weapon at your disposal in the midst of grief. Don't leave one of them on the ground. Don't leave one of them on, don't leave the cross on the ground as if you don't need to pick it up and go, he saved my life by giving his own. You need that. Don't allow the truth to stay on the ground 
as if you don't need it. You just need the tears. No, take it up. But don't leave the tears on the ground as if all you need is true stuff in your mind. No, you need the tears too. Take that up. Take up the fact that if he delays, he delays because he loves you, not in spite of his love for you. Take up his affirmation to you again and again and again. I love you. I love you. I love you. Take that up. And take up this great weapon that is he has a purpose for your suffering. He will be glorified in it and long to, learn to long and to yearn for his glory revealed in you so that you might say, whatever may come, whatever may come, just let it give you glory. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, Oh, how I pray that your word would land in our hearts. Some of my brothers and sisters are grieving right now. And I pray that what they need, you'd give them. What they need, would you give it to them? We love your tenderness. We love your truth, your tears, your wisdom. And we just say, we, we hear you today. We hear your word and we receive it. Plant it within us so that when grief comes, that word would be there. And our right response, Lord Jesus, is to just offer you praise now. It's to offer you praise. So would you receive it from us? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.